We have John Harris on this week of the Conversations That Matter podcast, and we are going to talk about race and American evangelicalism. This is Matthew Garnett. Welcome to In Layman's Terms. So for those of you who tuned into YouTube a few weeks back and saw John Harris and I discuss race and American evangelicalism, I am going back through that as promised and going to give you an abridged version of that. So if you don't want to go listen to the whole three-hour conversation, which is interesting, uh, it just seems like a lot of those uh, long-form YouTube conversations are great because they are on YouTube. You can see the people talking. It's it's a lot different of an experience, but with with a podcast where you have audio only, you really want to d- break it down to the to the essentials, and that's kind of what we're going to be doing here this week. And we'll probably be doing it another week. Although, again, I've been doing these uh, live interviews, and I've kind of mixed and matched them here and there. So we may bring another person in and um, bring John back you know, for, for the remainder, but it was a great conversation and uh, I hope you enjoy this inaugural episode at any rate. But before we get to all that, I want to thank all of you who, who are tuning in on KNNA The Cross. And I want to thank all of you who have been giving to the Kenya Well Project. That is fantastic. We've had, we kind of do this in fits and starts. We'll go have a dry spell and then all of a sudden, you know, five or $600 will come in. Well, we had one of those starts this week. So I hope that trend continues. i Please go to laymanstermsradio.org. Check out all the details there. And just keep in mind, you don't want your kids going to a school where they have to carry five gallons of bucket, five gallon buckets of, of dirty water just so they have some sort of water for the day. You would never send your kid to a school like that. And so let's get together here as Americans. We have to raise $30,000, folks. That's not a lot of money for us Americans. It's really not, especially if a few of us get together and pool our resources. So please do give and continue to give to the Kenya Well Project. And we thank all of you who have done that so far. Okay, so this is kind of the the interesting that this coincided with Black History Month, but we did do a lot of, or had a lot of interviews line up to talk about race and the church and how those two things interact and correspond to one another and how different figures, different leaders in the evangelical landscape are, are responding to this issue as these issues are raised with their, their own ranks. We talk about the things we're afraid of when it, when it comes to this. We talk about, you know, and, and really at the end of the day, what we're afraid of is not, is doing something that's not ultimately going to help lift people out of poverty come you know ultimately come come to the gospel and these sorts of things we you know we've proven once before that the social gospel simply just does not work it does not work to cre- create sustained faith which is really the foundation for everything else we get the cart before the horse in a lot of these discussions unfortunately we start talking about you know how can we help people and i really believe that especially that's what's gone on with uh together for the gospel and a few other organizations that have kind of gone this uh, this direction, you know, with really emphasizing the problems with race in America is a good thing. These these issues should be raised. We need to talk about them more than we do. And, and, but at the same time, we need to put forth genuine solutions that we can all get on board with and we can all, you know, say amen to that come from Holy Scripture. 
And, you know, some of that requires some, some hard words, you know, especially in our day and time when it's almost taboo to say to somebody who is living in poverty, say in the inner city, to uh, to take some personal responsibility. It's, at some point, those words have got to be spoken. And I, I just talked to a, a friend of mine, Lex Lutheran. We're going to have him come on, probably intertwine him here and there. And we kind of talked about this issue. We kind of went back and forth on, you know, it's, you can't tell somebody to pull themselves up by their bootstraps if they have no boots. And so where do we get the boots and how do we get the boots to people so they can pull themselves up? Um, and, you know, and, and where is it appropriate to talk about personal responsibility and where is it appropriate to talk about, okay, here's, here's a situation where if we altered this or we tweaked that, or we had this different law, or we had this policy, or we took, you know, we, we did away with this policy or this law that's forbidding people from, from taking personal responsibility going forward. We can talk about those things. At any rate, we've got to get to it. This will be our first installment of our abridged version of our YouTube interview with John Harris of Conversations That Matter. Enjoy. With the statement on social justice and these sorts of things, Okay, I, I get it, but but the problem I have is I really wish these men would have come out and said, hey, you want to talk about the problem in the disparities? Let's name it. And mm-hmm. what I have not heard talked about is the fact that um, across the board in America, the illegitimacy rate among African Americans is 70%. 90% yep. in inner cities. That number is staggering. Oh, and yeah, the fact awful. that the fact that that gets completely ignored in this debate most of the time and just laughed out of the room. I mean, one of my favorite scholars on this is Jason Riley, and he talks about all this and I've and I've seen him in lecture after lecture after lecture get laughed at when he says Ill- illegitimacy is the problem in the African American community and people just laugh at him. And we as Christians, you know, on, on both sides of this debate should be naming that problem. And so for, for again, quote, our side of it, I, that's, that's one point that we, I think we should be hammering home to the other side to say, hey, let's talk about illegitimacy, you know, in, in this situation. Because there seems to be a strong correlation uh, among... The notion that somebody is born illegitimate without a father is more likely to go to prison, is more likely to, to end up in poverty, etc. I mean, just the, the the numbers are indisputable. And again, I know I know um, correlation is a tricky thing. You can't. It's it's a difficult thing to make the connection. But when you look at women who have children by themselves without a father. These factors tend to just stack up across the board, yeah. And and that and that is something that just that that I wish both sides were talking about uh, more. You know, especially our side of it. You know, I wish the statement on social justice and the gospel would have come out and said, "Hey, you know what? We understand what the other side is saying, but here's our main thesis: We believe that if if the biblical prescriptions for family, fatherhood, and motherhood." Um, children were more closely followed, then we would see these disparities start to decrease. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I I think um, to break it down, 
this is not unique to Christian social justice warriors. Those are of our secular, uh, com, uh, their secular compatriots, I should say. Uh, they will do this about a number of different issues. I mean, they, they start out with, here's, here's the problem that we have, and we have the one solution, and debate it. And I, I think that is a tactic to, to mock instead of debate. It, it's supposed to play on the person's guilt. It's, it's character assassination. It's not actually arguing or, or engaging in, in rational discourse. One of the things that I've asked a number of times, I say, well, okay, what laws do we need to change? You know, there's systematic racism out there, and and we need to do something about it. I say, okay, and when they say systematic, there's sm- that word systematic smuggles in the the Marxists, yeah, uh, the whole Marxist contraption essentially. So I say, okay, it's systematic. You tell me then what laws are unjust. Give me the laws, and it, never can they do it. Um, they have to reach back usually years, you know, uh, fifty or more years to try to come up with some law that was applied and it's usually more than 50 years. Uh, so where, so is it the human heart then? Because that's the only other option. It seems like there's something intrinsically wrong with the way humans are functioning. It's not part of the contraptions of the, um, uh, the system that we live in governmentally. So uh, if it's a human heart condition, then as Christians, what do we do about heart conditions, right? What do we we apply the law of God, right living. Um, we incentivize right living. And ultimately, obviously, the gospel is at the bottom of that. And I think because the gospel is such a foundational thing, especially for a church, that's why the statement on social justice on the gospel really only focused on that. I, I think because if they were to start talking about um well, look, there's this fatherless issue, then it would it would receive more criticism. There, there's so much mockery for that already. I think they were kind of coming around. OK, what's the, the bare basics? We strip everything away. We're all Christians. Can't we agree on the gospel? And we, we didn't even have agreement there, which is shocking. People like yeah. even Al Mohler, who I respect deeply in, in many ways, yeah. I, I think it probably because of political pressure. He's trying to navigate this and he yeah. won't sign it. And it, yeah. it's like. Man, the intimidation level is so high that we can't even get down to to the the, the core of what we believe as Christians, the starting point. And if we can't get through the door of the starting point, how can we then take the next step to say, okay, what about fatherlessness? Right. Um, and so I think you're exactly right about fatherlessness. I just it's like the battle is um, it's so much worse than we thought. We have to almost start with right. Christianity 101. Yeah, I, I'm just at a, I'm not a, I'm at a loss, and and that. That was one of the big points I tried to make in, in my Federalist piece was that Al Mohler didn't sign this thing, and John MacArthur yeah. wrote it. It's he a, helped write it. He, he helped was part write of it. it. Yeah, right. he, he was and advised. So, yeah. And so I'm going, this this could get really, really interesting. I mean, w- what is going to go on in American evangelicalism if if there's a split between Al Mohler and John MacArthur? The, the, the problem with it is under underneath all of this is that um part of this this ethos that promotes or or forwards you know liberation theology um critical race theory uh cultural marxism mm-hmm. that 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 you brought up is yeah. the, is the simple fact that if i bring up the Ill- illegitimacy rate right then what the the charge that's going to be leveled against me in that is that um, 
my lived experience does so all right so i'm a ben shapiro fan right he says facts don't Mm -hmm. care about your feelings right (laughs) yeah yeah the problem with it is is that the other side says my feelings don't care about your facts yeah it's very hard because now we have a generation of people that were never required to actually think throughout their whole entire public education experience. I'm not saying every single person, but in general, you know, no one's taking rhetoric or logic or any of these things that were just assumed and required um, years ago. Uh, And so, um, and I I do think postmodernism is the basis for this whole social justice movement. It's not truth that's driving this narrative. It's power that is driving the narrative. Everything is about power and, uh, and truth is just a casualty of that. So when I was at Claremont, the kind of the big debate, I guess, if you will, was between are, are you Malcolm or are you Martin? Malcolm was very much of the opinion that, look, um, the only way to solve the oppressor oppressed thing is for the oppressors to become or for the oppressed to become the oppressors. And mm-hmm. that's just that's just how history is going to go um, for this amount of time. These this group has oppressed this group, and so therefore, what we've got to do is is work toward a situation where the oppressed group now oppresses the oppressors, and that and right, that's, and that's exactly the way right. that's the way forward. Um, and then you know, and then you had, and most of us were in the Malcolm or in the uh, the Martin camp, which said, yeah. no, we don't. You know, redemption is needed for both the oppressors and the oppressed. And that that's a big question in my mind, but I I think what's increasingly happened is that, uh, you know, especially in 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 our secular culture, is that those who are pushing for you know the the social justice agenda are saying that you know what um, this whole idea of the oppressor and the oppressed being redeemed it's not going to happen. We need mm-hmm. the oppressed to uh, start oppressing the oppressors. And that's, you know, and we'll do that for a couple, 300 years and then we'll reverse the situation. Uh, and essentially yeah. that's, you know, that's what postmodernism teaches is that, you know, you, you know, it's, it's uh, astonishing how this started out as literary theory <laughs> where yeah. you take, where you take the, where you take the, uh, the privileged, right. You wonder where we got that term. It's straight from Derrida. You take the privileged binary, man, woman. And you and you reverse them in the story, and you put the you put the oppressed binary above the privileged binary, and proceed from there. And I and I think yeah. you know the sexual revolution perfectly illustrates this. Where now it's you know the big question is, do we even know what a man and a woman is? Um, that that is exactly what Derrida was after to to break down these binaries these these hierarchies these privileges in in order that eventually a, an egalitarian utopia would emerge from the chaos um and so you know it's so with race relations so it's interesting because in the in the sexual revolution that's that's really chaotic and i, I think derrida would just revel revel in this he would just say this is exactly where i wanted this to go because yeah. now there's you know there's a question of even you know who's a man who's a woman you know who's this who's that if we can do that with race all 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 the better the problem yeah, yeah. So with, it's, it's the first box car and then the rest is going to follow so right. it's the intersectionality idea yeah. yeah 
Well, and, and the thing of it is, I think what we are afraid of on our side is to say that, no, hang on a second. We're afraid to say that, yes, um, the Judeo-Christian, West, Judeo-Christian Western liberalism is the, the best system of, uh, that, that human beings have come up with so far in human history under which to live. Mm-hmm. We're, we're afraid to say that our way is the best. Because, yeah. Be, yeah, and that, I mean, that's a bold statement. These yeah, I, I would agree. Western civilization is the best as far yeah. as um, it, it. I mean, if you look at it, just our English tradition stemming from Alfred the Great, his book of doom based on Ten Commandments, essentially through the Magna Carta, through, you know, coming to the shores of the America um, in the Constitution and our founding documents, uh, there's just no doubt that. The, the the Bible shaped all of this. And then, of course, the common law was kind of figuring out how these principles apply to various situations. Right. And, and that's where we've come to. And I think one of the issues today is uh, and, and, and this is what I think this will give people some insight into what's going on on seminary campuses in the Southern Baptist Convention, at least. There's this idea that we don't want to be part of either conservative or liberal groups. Uh, We're going to have this third way in the middle. Now, it is more liberal, this third way. But liberals have always done that. They always we're the moderates. We're not really extreme. And then you meanwhile, they're the most extreme people ever. It's a tactic. I I remember hearing chapel speeches and uh, and articles uh, being floated around southeastern that essentially said you shouldn't be Republican or Democrat if you're a Christian. This is an apples and oranges kind of thing a little bit like, yeah, an ecclesiastical group is going to be different than a political group. God has different laws that apply to the government than he does that apply to church. So, yeah, of course, that's true. But um, but that really wasn't the point that they were getting at. The point they were getting at was we do need to be engaging culture. That was a a word that was used quite a bit. Mm. But we shouldn't be taking the side of the conservatives or the liberals uh, we need to have this kind of biblical third way, except there really weren't a whole lot of Bible verses. Uh, right. And it was it was just let's be nice to everyone. And um, and so I think that's how liberalism, uh, one of the ways that it it kind of makes its way in is it pretends to be this neutral force. And it takes concepts like justice um, and love and it just defines them the way that it wants to define them. And but there's it's twisted. It's not the way the Bible defines them. It's not the way God defines them. I mean, think of yourself as like a church planner or something. You're going to go into this area. That's so appealing. Wow. I can draw from from liberal groups. I can draw from conservative groups. They don't have to give up their part, their their liberalism uh, if they come to my church and conservatives let they are going to force them to give up their conservatism but in theory they don't have to give up their conservatism and we can all just kind of you know i can show them the truth the third way but i think one of the best stories i have on that was from a donor at southeastern he was part of the Mm -hmm. southeastern society so he got into these backdoor meetings where they would wine and dine all the donors and Uh, thank you for giving to our school. We're going to present to you what we're doing now. And last year he went. It was the last time he went. He's not part of the society anymore because he just got so disgusted with the leftism. But um, what they have on Southeastern, this uh, Center for Kingdom Diversity, which is essentially it's more than just affirmative action, but it started as an affirmative action wing. And so he he gets into one of these meetings and uh, the provost is there giving a speech about this is what we're doing at Southeastern. And some of it is, is honestly um, 
look what the effect our affirmative action program is having, you know, and I'm thinking, yeah, his name's Bill. You, you got the one, <laughs> you got yeah. one more minority this year to come. Like it's not, I didn't notice a huge difference uh, on yeah. campus, but they'll, they'll, you know, put a percentage on it like we have. But the, the reason though, that this was such an important thing, he said in one of these backdoor meetings with donors, uh, and I, I don't mean like cloaks and daggers backdoor, I'm just saying it's right. just the donors were hearing this, uh, was this is how we're going to save the Southern Baptist Convention. And he, he pulled up all these demographics. Look how many people we're losing. Uh, and it's, it's white people. And if we are going to save this denomination, we need minorities. And it's right. imperative because the young, the you know, if you want to say white kids, I guess, the young white kids, they're not becoming Southern Baptist. They're leaving the denomination in droves. And that's the way we're going to save this denomination. And I find it incredibly condescending to think that the way that to get minorities is to speak the language of Marxism, yeah. which they probably don't think that's what they're doing. But that is what they're doing. They're saying the only thing you minorities understand, you aggrieved classes, you women, um, the only thing you understand is Marxism. And so that's what we're going to give you in the hopes that you will help us save our denomination. Yep. And so yep. there's, there's pragmatism behind all of this. It's, and that's that's my suspicion is, you know, having come from really a church growth background is that, OK, you know, so when the church growth movement started, you know, it was kind of, hey, let's do the music the culture is doing. Let's let's do our sermons the way the culture wants us to do it. You know, we yeah. go around and knock on doors, you know, Rick Warren style. What, what would it take for you to come back to church type of ideas? And yeah. and at this point in time, if if the church can be perceived as championing the social justice movement, then we can attract people to, to the church. But again, Southern Baptists are 10 years behind, you know, my denomination, the Lutheran church, Missouri Senate, we're, we're further behind than that. Uh, what, what we don't yeah. recognize is history. And we look at the churches who have embraced this and what, what's happened to yeah. them. You know, if I want to go see a good rock concert, I'll go to the jazz club or the rock, you know, the the bar on Saturday night. I don't really I need to necessarily go to church. You know, and it boils down to a real essential part of of theology, which is which is which is this idea of, of synergism that yeah. um, we as churches have to present the gospel in such a way that people will accept it. And if we don't, I'm glad present, you brought that up. Yeah, uh, I, I think you know this is really one of the fundamental problems because um, uh, because we don't believe what Holy Scripture says about how people are saved. We don't so, Matthew, believe... are you saying that all these young Calvinists are actually not Calvinists? <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, that's precisely what I'm saying, which is, again, what shocks me about Matt, uh, about a, a man like Matt Chandler and John Piper, is how in the world are you guys buying into this when you believe in God's sovereignty and you believe he elects those who will be saved? That's, I mean, yeah. what, you're, what you're talking about is utter nonsense um, when, when, it, when it comes to biblical doctrines of how people are saved. Just from what I know, with Matt Chandler, I have a harder time thinking that he's ignorant. And the reason for that is he has been corrected so many times. Mm. And he is, and he admits that he's been corrected. And he is very obstinate that he's, that basically anyone who disagrees with him is a bigot. And, um, and, and what he said has been a lot, I think, more extreme than David Platt. His attitude is much yep. more aggressive. And so I have a hard time. I don't know. Maybe he is ignorant. But if but if he is, um, there's an issue here. 
you know, hopefully this is something like, you know, Paul opposing Peter at Jerusalem, where, of course, Peter was about to, Peter was endorsing, essentially, a false teaching, uh, and Paul had to oppose him. And this is an apostle. And so I always have that hope. So a couple couple things you mentioned here in in the past few minutes is major big time red flags go up when I start hearing people talk about a third way. Yeah, I just, you know, I've been around the block enough times to know, look, there's not a third way. There's the biblical way and there's the not biblical way. And that's that's simply the end of the story. And so I want I want to not not caveat that, but but elaborate on that notion to say Mm -hmm. that the biblical way is the best way for people to live. When we teach what Holy Scripture teaches us, I mean, we're, we're teaching what God himself has given us. That's that's simply it. And that is the yeah. best way to live life. And it, it, it's astonishing to me that time after time after time, you talk about secular science or, or whatever else you want to look at. Um, since the Enlightenment, secular science catches up to what Holy Scripture teaches us. I, I often cite this on my podcast. Um, if, if, you're, if you're familiar with Brett Weinstein, he and his wife, Heather Hying, <coughs> did a podcast with Joe Rogan where they basically mm-hmm. came to the conclusion that a monogamous, um, committed relationship between a man and a woman that produces children is the most sexually fulfilling and most life-fulfilling situation you can put yourself in. And I'm like, Shocker. oh, <laughs> wow, we've known this for f- going on yeah. seven millennia now, eight millennia. I mean, God prescribed this in in the in the first chapters of Genesis, and it's taken secular science this long to catch up with it. And yeah. so, so the notion that you're going to come up with some way that you claim to be biblical—that's that's a third way. Um, you know, that's that's what baffles me about this. Is, is these guys should not be trying to embrace a little bit of this and a little bit of that and try try to create this third way. Is just say no. No. We're, yeah, we're, and that's, you know, they, they try to portray it as biblical, so I think that's right. the temptation. Um, and they don't realize that because they're ignorant of these other disciplines, they do not realize that, like I said before, Western civilization, especially our English heritage, it rests on the ideas of the Ten Commandments, biblical law. Right. And so now they're calling that extremist. You know, conservatism is extremism. We don't, and extremism is bad, so we need this moderate third way kind of thing. And, right. It's like, well, you're throwing out the wisdom that has uh, shaped uh, the, the wisdom that took as a, um, a starting point biblical moral law and then applied it to situations. You're throwing that all out. Centuries yep. of it. Yep. And saying we know better. The height of arrogance. The yep. height of arrogance. Yeah. Um, we're just and I've noticed that with a lot of these social justice guys. I noticed this at Southeastern. There was a lot of arrogance. And, and, you know, that means uh, seeing the immaterial world is more real than the material world. And the roles that God has given me are more important to me. Like he put forth in the beginning at creation um, and and there's a way to be in Scripture, a good husband and a good father, a good citizen, um, a good, um, uh, you know, leader in my church. Uh, there's all these things that God has assigned, these hats that I wear, hats that you wear. And what I find with a lot of these social justice warriors, it's like they have one hat. And social justice is giving them meaning in yeah. life. Yeah. 
it should be the gospel. It should be the 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 road that God has put them on, um, that, which means meeting their responsibilities. That should be what they're concerned about. And you would be surprised if you just take the commands of Holy Scripture and the vocations that God has given us clearly there, and you put your heart and soul into fulfilling those. Yeah. What a difference you could make in the world. I mean, here's my goal in life right now. Yeah. I want to raise. I have two children. One a teenager, one almost a teenager. My goal in life is that they keep their faith. That's it. That's it. Yep. And you would be surprised what pursuing that goal, how much, first of all, how much energy that takes. And second of all, what a difference that's going to make in the world. Um, now, John, you, you've been kind of talking about this stuff, and I am convinced that our social justice warrior friends would say that, well, you're just trying to protect your privilege and your, you know, your dominance over, over society. Um, yeah. One thing I want us both to make clear, and I think you'll agree with this is that we care about people. We yes. care that they flourish. We know that there is a right way and a wrong way to go about this life in society. And that is prescribed very, very clearly by Holy Scripture, it's it it's it's prescribed mm-hmm. clearly, but the boundaries are very very large. You know, you take the Ten Commandments; it's this fence way out here, and we've got all this room to play in. But the thing of it is, is we're often painted as people who who really don't care about the oppressed. We just want to protect our privilege. We just want to protect yeah. our way of life. And um, I I think we both can can agree that that's not what we're after here. I mean, the thing of it is, is if the the liberation theologians, the social justice warriors, if I thought they had the goods on lifting up a, a particular group, say black people out of poverty, not being jailed as much, if I thought they had the goods on that, I would buy into that 100%. But they yeah. don't. They Good don't point. have the way forward for these people. What they have is a way to to tear down what um, you know Judeo Western liberalism has established um, in, in order to hopefully bring bring about something that's going to be more equitable. And at the you know and then while we're all sitting here talking about this and pontificating about it and arguing about it, you know young boys are shooting each other in Chicago as we speak. What yeah. are we going to do about that? Um, it, Good word, know, Matthew. Good word. I yeah. agree with what you're saying completely. And we need, yeah, the concern should drive us to, if we're going to do something about this, uh, it needs to be um, doing it within the biblical parameters, I think, that are set forth according to the law that God has given us and not, it, you know, when people make that argument towards us and say, well, you're just trying to secure your privilege. It says a lot more about them than it does us. It says why they live life, why they have the motivations that they do. Not everyone lives that way for self-interest. In fact, just coming out and opposing this, it does not do any good things for a potential career for me. (laughs) Um, And okay, what if I'm a, what if I am a blue collar guy and I end up, you know, I, the only job I can get is not going to be in academia because I'm against social justice or say, okay, that's the way it is. Yeah. Um, the Lord will provide. And, and so, you know, I'm not concerned about my quote unquote privilege. Uh, what I am concerned about is, um, are those who are being harmed by this. And I think it's the very groups that 
are supposedly being helped by affirmative action, taking down monuments, uh, quotas, all the rest of the social justice package. Um, the groups that they pretend to help are actually the ones that are hurting because they are, there's a number of reasons for this, but one of the main ones I think is because they are being sold a, a lie that the re that you're a victim. The reason you're a victim yeah. is because you know what, look at all those people, those oppressors, they're the ones that kept you down. And we're gonna be the ones that are gonna save you. We're your saviors. We'll yeah. give you the resources you need to, to take their stuff and be where they're at. Yep. And and that's just not true. It's um, I, I love Booker T. Washington. I was actually at his uh, memorial not too long ago, checking it out. And um, and I've read his book Up from Slavery, which I recommend everyone to read. And he's been a forgotten uh, leader of Black history, if you want to call it that. I mean, there's I don't see anything about him during Black History Month. Um, yeah. And and this this is a guy who there's a reason for it. He would say that work hard. Um, he was, you know, a Christian and he believed that working hard and, um, producing something that benefits someone else. Uh, like one of the first things he did at Tuskegee was he made, he, he had them, he, I think he had him do it like three times cause they kept failing at making this. Um, it was a brick oven right. to make bricks. He said the South is going to need to be rebuilt. So let's make the best bricks that we possibly can for the glory of God. And that is going to be the thing that gives us upward mobility. It's, it's in caring about um, other people and, and working hard and doing it for God. And so anyways, he's now, it's kind of like, he's almost blacklisted. It's like, yeah. you just don't hear about him anymore yeah. um, because he wasn't, you know, they're the, you know, pointing fingers all the time that uh, it's, you know, it was unfair. A lot of the things that happened to um, his people group, but he wasn't trying to find revolutionary solutions to it. Because um, I do think discrimination and all these evil things, racism, these are heart conditions. Yep. And the way to fight them is not to then create new <laughs> forms of discrimination or new reasons for people to resent uh, or new stigmas. Uh, the, the way to fight it is to be friendly with one another, to help one another. But uh, but it seems like when when we're when we're faced with with two extremes, it's almost like we have to we have to pick one. That 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 was the thing that just was just blew my mind when I was at Claremont was I was trying to get away from religious extremism, and what I found was that you it in a sense you can't get away from that. You have to make a commitment, right? And what I found was that the folks at Claremont were more extreme than I ever was as an evangelical. Um, they were they were more committed to their to their agenda to their beliefs and how to how to proceed than than I ever was at, even as an evangelical um, and so again I bring back a bring this notion up of there is a right way to live there's a right way to conduct right. society there's a right right way and so often that's viewed as intolerant and as racist. And, you know, I, that's, that's the thing is I, I am interested. One thing that interests me greatly is lifting people out of poverty. Mm -hmm. And the best way I could instruct someone on how to get out of poverty is to follow the mandates, the vocations that scripture outlines for us, especially in the 10 commandments, 
obey your authorities, you know, be sexually pure, etc. You know, follow follow the Ten Commandments. Simple as right. that. Um, and 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 follow those with within the context of our Western liberal society, and your life will be good. Um, and it, and any other way that you come up with to live life is not as good as that. And I'm mm-hmm. willing. I'm willing to uh, to you know to stake my claim on that because there is there are there are better religions. There there are, there are true religions. The true religion which we have, which I will say is Christianity, and there mm-hmm. are false religions. And there are ways to live your life that are true to reality, and there are ways to live your life that are not true to reality, and. And I, and I think that's that's something that we've we've got to be willing to say, we've got to yeah. be willing to say that hey yeah we're saying that our way is the better way. Yeah, yeah, we are. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily an arrogant thing. Um, I mean, if you have the cure to can for cancer and you say I have the cure for cancer, are you being arrogant? It, it's no, <laughs> you're trying to help people. So um, I, I don't know. It's just to me maybe I'm overly simplistic on this, but. I just don't think that's much of an objection uh, at all yeah. to say that yeah, we don't care or, um, you know, we because we think that our viewpoint, uh, which isn't really our viewpoint, we, we got it from somewhere else. I mean, yeah. God's viewpoint is really what we're representing here. But just because yeah. we think the law of the Lord uh, is is good for people to follow um, doesn't make us arrogant. In fact, it, for me, it makes me humble because I know I don't keep it. And I know I have myself to blame for most of the issues uh, in my life. It's either my sin or someone else's sin. That's pretty much it. Those are the issues in my life. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Well, and and that's the, I mean, you bring up a a really great point that I bring up over and over again on my podcast is who has the authority to say? Who has the authority? We talked about, you know, people talk about objective morality all the time. Well, no morality is objective unless it comes from an outside source, right. unless it comes from a source outside of us. And the only source that objective morality can come from, it can't come from, um, um, you know, ethical philosophy. It, it can't it can't come from human beings. It's got to come from a source outside of ourselves. Right. Um, and that's that's really ultimately the, the, the way around this. And so, as you know, as a, as a white cisgendered Christian male, I'm not ashamed to say that, hey, yes, if you want your life to be good, then follow the follow this set of instructions. I'm, you know, yes. I'm not afraid to say that. So one of the things that's happening now, um, someone I'm very close to is in public education, and uh, he recently told me it is considered privilege to be white Um partially because not not just like economic like you've the deck has been stacked against minorities in your favor but it's actually privileged to have two stable parents who raised you that's white privilege now yeah in in some some circles so yeah you gotta you know you gotta check your privilege did you have two parents that were that stayed together and didn't get divorced and you know they were they cared about what you ate and the kind of grades that you got and maybe they disciplined you so that you wouldn't do stupid things that hurt yourself well that's privilege that's and they're attributing this some people to the color of skin uh, well that's that's because they're white and and now we have to somehow compensate for all those who didn't have that 
it's ridiculous. It's so many reasons that's ridiculous because, you know, I can show you numbers of white, if you want to say white cultures throughout history and even today, if we go to certain geographic areas where they are not uh, following a biblical model for what a family is. Right. And they're having the same issues that, um, you know, so it's, it's so, it, it's like so sure the, the view, the scope of this is so small because they're only look, they're comparing like two things. It's like, here are those who lived in urban city areas and ghettos. And we're going to compare them to middle class to upper class, uh, you know, yuppies. And that's yeah. it. That's the only, it's like, okay, the, the world's a lot bigger than that. History is a lot longer than that. Yeah. And, um, and, and, you know, did you think that maybe those who are in the middle class tend to be a little more stable in their family relationships and so forth? And maybe that could be part of it. Um, but uh, but yeah. So um, where was I going with this? I was just going to say that uh, Western culture, they call it white privilege because those in Western culture happen to be regionally. We're just in areas where people are white. That I mean, that's. It could have happened anywhere else. I think I think you would agree with me to say, OK, if Christianity made huge inroads in, let's say, China early on and there was this, you know, it, it would also foster a technological revolution and all the other things that came with Christianity coming to Western societies. Yeah. Um, and so it's not it has nothing to do with color of skin, but that's what we're told is it's so, so people are assuming who make this argument that. The, our your worldview, the way you live, what you have, like everything is so determined based on your identity, which is your race. Uh, they're completely taking, um, they're not taking into account the what worldview uh, does and how it affects culture and and what religion does. And I mean, these are these are the things that actually make the differences. And so, I would say it's racist to level that accusation yeah. and. It's not racist to say that this truth from the word of God uh, the, the, and, and even, you know, natural revelation, just the way that God wired the world, these truths um, the, and the, the wisdom of Proverbs included in this, uh, they apply to everyone. Red, yeah. yellow, black, white, green. I mean, yep. it doesn't matter uh, if you follow these principles and your culture values these principles, then. You will be more blessed. <laughs> yeah, just no, that's right. The way well, that it works. Yeah, so, that's exactly right, and that's that's um, what that's what Western God cultures tell- figure that out. Yeah, and, and and that's exactly what God tells us at the end of the at, at the end of the Decalogue is if you if you follow these precepts, you will be blessed. Simple yes. as that. If you don't, you will be cursed, and you will be cursed to the third and fourth generation. And that's that's the thing. And, that's the. And they were Jews, the, right? They weren't white people. They were Jews, right? I mean, okay. If we sometimes say people say Jews are white people, but I was just going to say, in Isaiah, it says they're supposed to be a light to the nations. Yep. So God's saying, hey, nations, follow what makes Israel prosper. Yep. That's why the Queen of Sheba came to see Solomon. So it's yes. like this has nothing to do with skin color yep. or even necessarily your cultural heritage as much as it does. The law of God and applying these principles, and they can apply anywhere. So right, right, right. Okay, so I had I, so I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit because I heard your interview with, and I can't I can't remember the gentleman's name who's making the film about this, but oh, Judd Saul, yeah, yeah. I have so, another interview with him tomorrow for those who are watching, so that should be fun. Right on, yeah. I'll definitely, yeah. Everybody, definitely check that out um, because I, I I found it alarming. Uh, the the question that was asked was. You know, there's some funding coming in 
from someplace um, to to kind of put this this agenda uh, kind of put this agenda forward. Yeah. Uh, you know, Thomas says John has spoken about the past about you know the funding for social justice and et cetera, et cetera. Um, how, how much can can you speak to that? I've heard even a lens. Um, well, yeah, so I'll tell you a little story. Yeah. I was at this social gospel, social gospel, uh, I was a social justice in the gospel um, conference in January, and I'm sitting next to Judd Saul. This is the first day I've ever met him, and uh, and so I told him about. I was. He knows kind of my story. We had been doing some interviewing and so forth, and. Um, you know, he goes, what was that that professor that you were, ta-? you know, was a, there was a couple of professors I was mentioning, but one of them in particular said, what was that professor's name? So I told him. So he pulls out his phone and he does a, uh, a just a Google search with the professor's name and socialism. Mm. And then within two seconds, it seemed like he shows me the screen of his phone and he goes, is this the guy? And I look at it and I said, yeah, that's him. And he goes, well, he's taking money from Kern Family Foundation. He's taking money from Coke, uh, Coke money. He's taking So he had this like he's like, yeah, and he's teaching um, uh, or he's behind, I guess, forming curriculum for the Oikonomia Network and uh, which is funded by Kern Family Foundation. And he goes, yeah, that sounds about right. And I'm looking at him I'm like you just found that in two seconds, just by me giving you the guy's name he goes, yeah. It's all out there. They're not hiding any of it. Hmm. And um, and so that was the first thing that started. I, like, I didn't care. And in, in some ways, I still think it's about ideas, not about, you know, who's funding it. Because they can pour billions of dollars in, but if people know the truth, they're not going to follow that. But right. uh, we can't be so, um, you know, as people who are monergists, I guess, we can't be so optimistic about human nature. Um, you know, money will tempt people and it will... Right. Uh, will persuade some. So when he showed me that, I my world was changed a little bit, and I started looking into it a little more myself. And I was like, "What in the world is going on?" I had no clue there was this this outside money was coming in, and what it was funding. And I started finding out at the school I had gone to, they weren't hiding any of these things, uh, but you know they were um, uh, <clears throat> they were. They, they were actually proud of it. They were saying, um, look what we're doing with all this outside money and look how uh, diverse it is because of it. And look how it, it was all the things we've been talking about, third way and, and, and trying to keep minorities and so forth. They were using that money to try to forward these leftist objectives and very proud of, of doing it. So, um, you know, I can talk more about it if you want. But that was kind of my introduction to it. And it shocked me at first. I, I, I didn't know that was happening. Uh, and I know this from my own connections with them. Um, but, you know, they would if they knew Soros money was coming in. Oh, my goodness. That would create such a uh, an issue. So they have to kind of stay away from that. And uh, and that also gives them, I think, the illusion of this third way that like, well, we're not extreme left. But if Soros money is coming in, then, oh, yeah, they, they, no one's going to believe that. Right. Um, and so uh, I got to be very clear. I'm not accusing Southeastern of taking Soros money or anyone at this point. I'm, I'm using that as a hypothetical. And I'm going to let Judd be the one to draw the connections he wants to draw when the film comes out and, uh, and he can show all the, all the connections he wants. But, um, but I, you know, I am saying that uh, there, are, there are bigger groups that fund some of the things going on on these seminary uh, campuses and Christian institutions like Gospel Coalition 
there there are I think we'd be surprised probably if we knew how many hands are in the pot. So let me, let me just let you pontificate on this a bit. Why is it we don't want to be in any way, shape, manner, or form? Why why is it that we don't want to go the Marxist direction? It does contradict Christianity quite a bit. Just the starting assumptions, uh, kind of. Marx, I mean, he was a dialectical materialist, so his worldview was was not in keeping with Christianity. If you read some of like Oikonomia stuff. Uh, even if you read Keller, um, I was reading, what was the book I was reading? Every Good Endeavor. He seems to make a similar point where, uh, you know, capitalism isn't so good. And, you know, Marx also, not a good guy. Uh, Marxism isn't, isn't, we shouldn't support that. But some of the things Marx said, uh, if we ground them in Christianity, I, I'm summarizing here and giving you kind of my interpretation as well. But if we ground them in Christianity, then it's okay. So we don't like the dialectic materialism, but uh, if we if we just use Christianity as the foundation, we can achieve some kind of a social justice. And, and so Marx, uh, you know, the word social justice itself is not necessarily unique to Marxism. That's the um, the form in which ha- has taken over in our context. But uh, fascists believe in social justice. If you read, I was reading a book about uh, German soldiers on the Russian uh, front line during World War II, and they loved Hitler and the Nazi party because they thought that they had achieved social justice in Germany. And of course, Hitler's, um, the, the motto of Germany is Germany awake at the time. And, and Hitler was very concerned about Jewish privilege uh, because <laughs> there was this perception that you know the Jews did not represent themselves well in the First World War. There was this this it was kind of it's a myth, but there were there, it was this common understanding among everyone and that uh, in Germany that, you know, the, the Jews just did not fight in World War One. They didn't care. They didn't they, they weren't proud to be Germans. And so they, they got this stigma of being these leeches on the culture and, and they didn't care about um, about those poor. You know, here we're having the oppressed class, these poor Germans who went to, to fight in the war. And, and then, of course, in the Weimar Republic, uh, because of the way represent, representation um, was w- was organized, at least in, in it wasn't the whole term of the Weimar Republic, but in, in uh, for, for many years in the Republic, it, how much money you had could could mean you had more influence, you had more votes, essentially. And so, Jewish people had more money. Yep. And so, so Hitler could you know pin that on them. Look at the the privilege; they had more influence. And then every time the stock market crashed, well, who were the ones that were the financers? Who were the ones that were the bankers? Well, look what the Jewish people are trying to do. They're they're the rich people. They're so it was all about vilifying them, um, and 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 not only that, but they're immoral. They are, and in Germany at the time, that looked like, well, look, the the person who's making all the condoms is is Jewish, and the person that's the people behind pornography in this country, they're all Jewish. And and some of this, there was some truth to it. I mean, if you look at our country today, look at Hollywood, look at, okay, there's a lot of Jewish people, right? Um, and so, uh, and what I, I gotta be very careful how I, I phrase this. I, 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 Nazism is absolutely disgusting. I need to say this because people are gonna take my words out of context here, but yeah. um, absolutely disgusting. I completely disagree uh, with Hitler. I have no problem with Jewish people being in Hollywood or uh, as bankers. In fact, um, I, I have a very good friend who is uh, someone who's Jewish, who is in the finance industry, love him to death. And, uh, 
And I do think Jewish people do tend to be a little smarter and God has blessed them in that way. And I'm completely fine with all of that. I have to get that out of the way. Not, you know, not anti-Semitic at all. And I'm concerned about anti-Semitism in Europe even now and and in the Muslim world. But, uh, but anyway, so, but in Germany, uh, there was this perception. We, they vilified Jewish people Mm. and then, um, and then they, they got rid of the problem. I mean, most people probably don't know, even Kristallnacht. It, it, it was, there was a shooting in uh, France. I believe it was a German embassy in Paris. A Jewish person goes in and shoots up the place. And the reaction to it is, let's, let's destroy these businesses. And so there was always some kind of a justification. So what does this have to do with social justice? Well, this is what it has to do with social justice. In that context, a certain segment of society was completely vilified for having privilege, having more than everyone else not having to undergo the, the hardships that other people had to undergo. And because of that, um, Hitler c- could use that to inspire Germany to awaken. Uh, they got woke uh, to this. And, uh, and then we see the results of that. And so I'm not, I don't think every social justice um, uh, paradigm is going to lead to exactly what happened in the Holocaust. But I'm saying the potential is there. Uh, the more you vilify a group of people and say they're the haters, they're the ones, you're going to demonize them. You're going to dehumanize them. I think that's already happening. Yeah. And and then why not kill them? They're responsible for all the problems. It's not the human heart. It's not sin. We're not going to look at ourselves. It's easier to blame an outside force. Christianity is completely antithetical to that. And so, yeah. so, so to put a cap on it, in Germany, it was not a class thing. It was more of a culture thing. But in Marxist, so, so Germany was national socialism. Marxism is international socialism. So it's based on class more than it is based on your culture. The form it's taken in our country has been the, the oppressor-oppressed paradigm uh, or that, that, um, that division is not just economic. We have – that's the neo-Marxism. It, it's, it's more than that. It's now uh, race, you know, skin color, um, sexual orientation – gender, these things also now become part of the mix. That's that intersectionality. And so uh, we've seen what Marxism has done uh, in other countries in South America, of course, um, in Asia and uh, even in Europe. And and we see that these are not good results. And uh, the reason is because it contradicts a basic biblical anthropology. There is no utopia. Heaven has to wait until we are dead or or Christ comes. And Um, and, and so striving for that in this life, based on the idea that man is going to intrinsically be good, if we get the right people in charge who divide all the spoils uh, equally, it's just naive. I mean, that'll never happen. You never can achieve that because within two seconds, there's going to be some guy who's got more resources or some girl who they, they're just smarter or whatever the case is. They can trade better and you're, you're always going to have an upper class. Um, and that's what Marxism has shown us is that every time it's tried, you just end up with a different set of elites. That's what the French Revolution showed us. You just, yeah. OK, we killed all the elites. Now we have a new, uh, you know, the, the devil we knew was better than the devil we didn't. This this, this is what so. Um, so I've, I've read the Gulag Archipelago. And what most disturbed me about. Uh, Stolenitsyn's writing there was that the the main premise of 
of socialism of Marxism is you is you uh, take the elites and you dispense with them generally by death or imprisonment. The elites in our Western culture are the people who are making iPhones. They're the people who are doing agricultural projects that are on the cutting edge. They are people who are doing manufacturing projects on the cutting edge. And the same was true in in Russia. So they would, they would go find these farmers who were enormously successful and execute them and kill them. We kind of see this going mm-hmm. on in South Africa right now. Yeah. Yeah, exactly what's going on in South Africa. Yeah. Rhodesia is another good example. Yeah. Yeah. And so and so you take the quote elites who are providing probably the lion's share of what is making a culture or society successful and you you execute them either in you know culturally or physically. I mean, that that's the thing. We've 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 we're kind of seeing that in our in our climate today in in a sense where if you tweet the wrong thing, if you say the wrong thing, then you can be in a sense publicly executed. Although, God be praised, we're not killing anybody yet, but we are ending people's careers. Alright, so there you have it for this time. Please do listen to us, continue listening to us on KNNA The Cross Nebraska. Thank you all you folks up there that are listening and for Pastor Poppy for having us up there and um, thank you for all of you who are giving to the Kenya Well Project and please do continue to give to that. We'll see you next time.